Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Larry Wilmore, Black on the Air. I am Larry Wilmore. Of course, I'm Black on the Air. What a year it's been, man. This year has gone by so fast. It's hard to believe that it's mid-December. And um, I'm having so much fun doing this podcast. And once again, I just want to thank everybody for listening in. Be sure to share with your friends. Tell everybody, listen to Larry Wilmore, Black on the Air. (laughs) And remember, we were mentioned Time Magazine number five in their top 10 podcast, 2017. What an honor. What an honor. Today, I'm really looking forward to uh, playing this for you. I had a talk with Dan Rather in front of an audience last night in Riverside for Live Talks Los Angeles. He's promoting his book right now about uh, patriotism called What Unites Us. And we had a great talk. It was so much fun. I've, I've wanted Dan Rather on the podcast for a while. So I think you will enjoy that. It's a nice talk in front of an audience with some Q&A at the end. Really good time. Really enjoyed that. Can't wait for you to hear it. Man, there's so much going on, you guys. So much, it's hard to cover it. So you really have to be selective, you know, with all the things going on. As of now, today is Wednesday. So there's a lot of pressure coming right now on the whole Al Franken thing to resign. I don't know. By the time you listen to this, I don't know if it will happen. It seems like the Democrats are trying to, I guess, get the moral high ground, which is you know, an oxymoron because we're talking about politics, right? Uh, to try to have a voice against uh, Ray Moore in Alabama, which to me is a losing fight. I mean, the president of the United States has come out in support of this accused pedophile. <laughs> I mean, the game is over. Alabama is definite. I would be shocked if Alabama does not vote him in. I mean, shocked, you know. there, the There is no shame <laughs> at all in the bones of the president of the United States. Politically, though, this type of thing always happens, by the way. We should not be outraged that uh, people would dare to vote in somebody who has a questionable background. It's happened on both sides. It happens all the time. But in this case, there's a lot at stake. That's just a messy, (laughs) messy, fucked up situation. Uh, You know, but it is ironic, though, that I think Representative Conyers uh, just resigned. It looks like Franken may go. And that the Democrats are trying to take a stand now of telling people to resign or saying they're not going to put up with this behavior. While at the same time, even the president of the United States and all these Republicans saying we don't care about these accusations because political ideology trumps horrible behavior, pun intended there. So that's going on. So we'll see what's going to happen. But I wanted to say that um, big props for person of the year to the Me Too movement. I mean, what a year this has been for for women coming out and telling their stories. And I guess the acknowledgement is for, I think they're calling it a broken silence, I think is what the term is. And I just want to acknowledge everybody who has come out and told their stories. And also how amazing it's been for some of the monsters among us. Harvey Weinstein, of course, the biggest one. I mean, the horrible shit that he did, I think it's still going to come out. Just some of the horrible stuff that he's that he's been accused of, I guess, if we're going to be fair. Right. But um, just the fact that women are are speaking up about this and people are listening to the women about this and they're being believed, I think, is a big step forward. Whether or not it is a true watershed moment and it is a reckoning, we'll see. Time will tell, you know. But, man, 
if there's no real change with a big moment like this, we have some really fucked up problems, you guys. I mean, I got to tell you, if this doesn't change shit, I don't know what to say. And Tarana Burke, who was the founder of the Me Too movement, I think in 2006 she coined that phrase. I'm so happy that she was recognized because of that, too. Many times women of color, she's a black woman, kind of get lost in this conversation as well. This affects, as we know, there's no uh, ideology. It's not partisan. We've said that, you know. But many times women of color can get marginalized in this in this area. So the inverse of this Me Too thing, there's another phenomena happening right now, which I believe is cynically riding on the heels of the Me Too movement and on the energy of the women who are speaking out and being heard. And the righteous outrage, because there is a righteous outrage against a lot of this, but there is also a non-righteous outrage that is happening. And and there's a term that's going around right now, and it's called weaponized outrage. And I think we need to be on the lookout for this because it's very important. And I'll bring up one example of it. This, by the way, kind of happened to me, weaponized outrage, although there was nothing to, to fire me from at the time. And last summer, I shared this with you guys, if you're listening to my podcast, Fox News tried to troll me. The kid who died in North Korea, Otto Warmbier, I believe was his name, um, he was treated horribly there. And on my show, a year and a half earlier, I was uh, just going after him for committing that what I felt was a stupid act of stealing that flag or whatever it is in North Korea because of the dangers of doing something like that and the entitlement that goes along with it. You know, I also went after Leandro Ball and those kids this past summer for stealing sunglasses in China. Same type of thing. But Someone pulled out that clip after this kid died a year and a half later as if I was making those comments about him now and basically used weaponized outrage, you know, just um, showed it over and over. Fox News picked it up. Tucker Carlson played it, uh, called me a horrible, despicable person, you know. But at the time, I didn't have a show. Nobody could fire me for anything. So me as a target kind of just fell flat, you know, but certainly... It was horrible, you guys, just feeling a victim of that and knowing that that was not my intention at the time. I would never troll on a dead person's body like that. That was ridiculous, completely taken out of context. So this kind of happened with Sam Cedar. Now, Sam Cedar is uh, an activist, I guess you could call radio personality. He's a progressive. He's been speaking up for a very long time. I actually worked with Sam back in the 90s, and he was very funny. He was an actor for a while, and he decided to become an activist on the left. And he made a, let's call it an inappropriate joke on Twitter back in 2009, okay? And it was in response to the left's embrace or silent embrace or non-damnation, let's say, of Roman Polanski, who was not only accused, but I believe in, there was an indictment against him for raping a 13-year-old girl, guys. I mean, a horrible thing. And the details of that are horrible. But the Hollywood left basically never acknowledged that that even existed. Sam was responding to, at the time in 2009, some of the recent, I think, embracing of Polanski. And he tweeted, and I'll read it to you. He said, um, and this was meant as his satirical attempt to speak in the same manner that the left speaks about him. So don't care regarding Polanski, but I hope if my daughter is ever raped, it is by an older, truly talented man. Uh, with a great sense of mise-en-scene. So he put that on Twitter. 
meant as a as a joke. And by the way, you're taking your chances, we all know, by trying to joke on Twitter. Twitter is completely humorless. If you're going to joke about rape, you're already taking your chances, absolutely. A lot of people aren't going to find that funny no matter what point of view you're taking, right? But if we look at this in context and what he was doing, that's him making a statement against this horrible thing, you know. That's the context of it. He's not defending rape. He's not, uh, he's not defending Polanski. He's on the correct side on this. You can argue that he, his uh, approach was not right, but he's definitely on the correct side. So someone decides to use this to bring down Sam Cedar because he is a very ardent voice, you know, speaking up against Roy Moore. And, you know, he's on the left right now. You know, he's on the left. He's, he's on MSNBC. So he was trolled about this, I believe, on Twitter and, and maybe some other ways. And MSNBC fired him, you know. And I think they did it thoughtlessly. Do they have the right to fire him? Of course. Are they just trying to avoid controversy? I guess. Are they not really thinking this through? Absolutely. This is an example of weaponized outrage. It's using the culture of outrage to just bring down somebody that you don't like. And by the way, this happened to Sam on the left, but we have to be careful that this isn't happening anywhere on the left or the right. Because first of all, for me, it downgrades the real important issue that is going on right now, as we said, the Me Too movement. I don't want things to distract from what's really happening out there to the women who are actually being assaulted actually being harassed in this issue that's actually going on. And we're going to spend our energies going after a inappropriate joke that was on Twitter in 2009 from somebody who was arguing on the correct side of this from a network that is supposed to be an ally in this as well. That is insane, you guys. It doesn't make sense. Okay. So I just want to point that out as a thing. Don't have a lot of jokes for it. <laughs> I apologize. I'm, I know I'm supposed to be a comedian sometimes, but some of this shit is just too real. Sometimes you just got to keep it 100, you guys. You just got to keep it 100% real. Okay. Anyhow, that's all I want to say about that. Very happy that Me Too was person of the year, Time Magazine. Bravo. So I have a live talk with Dan Rather coming up. I think you're going to enjoy it a lot. But uh, first, let's have a quick word from one of our sponsors. Yes. After you, sir. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, shoot. I sat down before Dan Rather. <laughs> Thank you. Welcome uh, to Live Talks, uh, Los Angeles, technically Riverside, uh, the sunny, windswept plains of Riverside, not on, like your plains of Texas today. Right? Um, and also for my podcast, uh, Larry Wilmer, Black on the Air. Thank you so much for being here. Dan, you are both in a live talk and you are Black on the Air. How does that feel? It feels terrific. It feels awesome, doesn't it? <laughs> and I'm very grateful for it. Let's face yes. it, to, to have the kind of um, thing happen on social media that has happened at my age and stage of career. Yeah. I can say I'm surprised, but I'm very grateful. Well, we, we all love you. I've been a fan of yours, of course, for a very long time, being Thank the you. news junkie, you know, <laughs> that I am. And this is my second time meeting you, you know, you know, when you fanboy around something. So I'll try to calm down on that because uh, you have a really, really great book here, What Unites Us. And it's real interesting. Um, and you talk about uh, reflections on patriotism. What's interesting to me is why you would write a book like this. 
Does it feel like we're not united right now, Dan? Um, <laughs> I don't get it. Does any, I, you know, well, there does is it feel question. kind of divisive right now to you or something? Or? No. Uh, here's why I wrote the book. Uh -huh. That there's so many voices who are trying to exploit our divisions. We have serious problems. Uh -huh. And this is, a, a, in my opinion, a particularly perilous time for the country. Yes. We're walking through a fairly dark value, valley. But I found myself saying, you know, when I travel around the country, and as a reporter, I like to travel, I like to talk to people. Sure. I do think the country is united around any number of fundamental values. Uh -huh. And there's so many, as I say, so many voices preaching the gospel of division for their own, they try to exploit it for their own partisan, political, and or ideological reasons. That I found myself saying, you know, I'd like to start a conversation. Uh -huh about what the core values are that unite us, and also what patriotism is uh -huh. in here in the second decade of the 21st century. Yes. What is patriotism? What, what is your definition of patriotism? Well, my definition of patriotism is love of country uh -huh. to the extent that you're prepared to give your life if necessary to the country. Uh -huh. However, mixing with the humility to know that the country is not perfect, perfection is not achievable, but it's always the distant navigational star that we're moving toward. Uh -huh. But patriotism includes the humility to recognize that what we're about this experiment in America is constantly improving. Right. Frankly, you know, we may talk about them later on, but we obviously still have really deep and abiding problems with racial justice, uh -huh. inclusion. We have big problems with guns. But we have these values that go all the way back to the founding of the country. Good time to remind ourselves about those sort. But with patriotism, that's patriotism, which is separate from nationalism. Nationalism. And I encourage mm -hmm. anyone that needs a reminder, just look up the two words in the dictionary. Yes. There's a different definition of patriotism and nationalism. Now, they do overlap in that mm -hmm. nationalism has to do with love of country, but we know from history, this is one of the points I wanted to make in what unites us. We know from history the dangers of extreme nationalism. Uh -huh. Extreme economic nationalism during the 1920s led to the Great Depression. And extreme racial uh, nationalism, called Aryan nationalism, led to Adolf Hitler. Yeah. That is the road when it starts with authoritarianism at the top, then goes into extreme versions of nationalism, and the next step is nativism, and beyond that is tribalism. Now, in this country, if we ever descend into strictly just tribalism, ever, <laughs> then our system of government is finished. Now, we're not at that point, but you can see the beginnings of that trail. Yeah. So all the more reason to say now, patriotism, nationalism, be very skeptical of this talk that we need to move away from traditional patriotism and to nationalism, that's dangerous for us. Great. And uh, does it feel like, a, where does it, and you say we're dangerously close to, uh, to nationalism right now, where does jingoism come in on this scale? Is, is, is it closer to that or is it actually nationalism? No, jingoism is, is closely allied with uh, nationalism. Right. And jingoism, sort of, this is the offhand definition, uh -huh. would be the... All of my definitions are offhand, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> well, as we'd say in Texas, shot from horseback. Yeah. Which, 
Um, I love all of Dan Rather's things, you guys. <laughs> we should encourage him to do as many as we can tonight. But jingoism is the articulation of, of an extreme nationalism. Jingoism yes. is really tr propaganda for nationalism. Does that ring a chord with what you've been hearing some in this country lately? Yeah, it's, it's yes. Um, it's very disconcerting right now, you know. And to me, I always try to make a distinction when I think of patriotism between patriotism and criticism. I always feel like people conflate those two. You know, I feel like criticism is a necessary part of having a healthy country, but it doesn't necessarily have to be conflated with patriotism because people feel if you're being critical of the country, you're being unpatriotic. No. I feel those are two different things. That's why they're different words. Well, exactly. And there, there is... A... Right? That's why we have words. Absolutely. And one of my favorite chapters of the book, obviously, I like every chapter in the book. Yes. <laughs> yeah, every chapter. It would be great if you didn't, though. There's this one trash chapter, Larry. Please don't read that but chapter. It's a chapter, a chapter on dissent. Yes. Because dissent is a, as American as the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. To use the cliche, it's as American as apple pie. Dissent has been very, very important in the development of the country. Mm -hmm. And every time there's a dissent that matters, when it begins, it's criticized. It's yes. criticized as being radical. It's criticized as being against the military, unpatriotic. Right. Uh, and even socialist, communist. And a good example would be, we're filled with examples in American history, but one example would be getting women the right to vote. Mm -hmm. When women in the 19th century started saying we shouldn't have the vote, they were called unpatriotic, yes. uh, radical extremists, right. in some cases socialist, if not Marxist, all of that. But finally, when we got to the 20th century, women got the right to vote. Looking back on it, we say that dissent was very important to making us a better country. Yeah. And that's the reason we have to be very careful. And again, there are very powerful forces in the country mm -hmm. right now are going through it. They want to equate dissent with lack of patriotism. Yes. With some form of extremism, it's, being against the military, which, uh, is, which is outrageous. Yeah, it's happening in the Colin Kaepernick situation. Exactly. Uh, Colin Kaepernick, big afro, you know, yeah. uh, played for the 49ers and, you know, he wanted to do his own protest. It started as kind of a silent protest. Right. Um, protesting the treatment of African Americans by some, some police in this country. It was yeah. that protest. But somehow it was interpreted as anti-military. Well, it wasn't yeah. somehow. <laughs> that, that, no. Keep it in a hundred, all right. No. <laughs> no. You know, Larry, I like your expression, keep it 100. Yes. And to keep it 100. Keep it 100. It then. didn't just happen. Right. Uh, that President Trump seized on this. Mm -hmm. he, he saw a moment to help himself with his base of support in the country. Right. By equating that act being against the U.S. military, which frankly is ridiculous, and being unpatriotic. Yeah. Now, I want to make clear, I stand for the national anthem. I put my hand over my heart and sure. almost always, I at least mouth the words, sometimes sing them. That's what's within me. That's, mm -hmm. that's what I feel. But that doesn't make me more patriotic mm -hmm. than the people who are trying to call attention to racial injustice and, and particularly the, you know, those police acts that are a reflection sometimes of that. Yeah. And what I try to do is listen and make sure I understand what they're saying. Then I can agree or disagree, 
with on principle. But where I am on this, and I do think as a country, if you stop and think about it, mm -hmm. some patriots stand, some patriots kneel. Mm -hmm. And we can understand one another. And it, it's a great mistake to follow these voices of division and say, ah, you know what? This is a hot button issue and I can, I can help myself politically. Right. But they don't help the country doing that. But the whole thing about dissent is we have to have dissent if we're going to stay true to our national character sure. of ever improving. You know, our original motto for the country was, you know, from many, one, mm -hmm. being united. And it's easy to lose sight of it when we're going through this time. I, look, I travel around and talk to people. There are a lot of people who are really, not just fearful, but feel a certain terror yeah. right now. Now, honest, decent, intending people can differ about whether that's justified or not, but it's a real feeling with them. Mm -hmm. And I think we have, to, we have to address that and say, you know, time to be steady. There's a chapter in the yes. book, study. Just hold study, <laughs> keep it 100, and yeah. we'll, we'll get through this. Is that in your book, Keep It 100? No. That would be fantastic. That's your I don't book. remember that. Where is it? <laughs> yeah, You're keeping it 100 tonight, though. You're doing it a little different. Um, I love that your book divides things in different chapters, different topics to express patriotism, I think is, is, is very... Um, it's really nice to do that. It's a nice way to digest this idea because it is somewhat of a broad idea, especially the notion of what unites us. But I was really struck by the beginning when you talk about growing up in Texas and how you were kind of shielded from things like racism or, or sexism or these type of issues. And there's an interesting story where you mentioned going to, I think it was a, a precinct meeting or something like that. Yes. And uh, your father uh, 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 took you, I believe, and there were a couple of African-American gentlemen who, you know, that was a dicey thing for that to happen in Texas at that time, right? right? Well, the time is um, about 1944, 45 in there. Was it still during the war? Or? Yes. Uh, uh, the war was either ended or coming to it. It was end. around that time. And yeah. very quickly what it was. Yeah. It, uh, first of all, Texas uh, of my youth had institutionalized racism. Well, a, you don't have to remind me. Yeah. <laughs> I, no, yeah. I'm just reminding myself yes. and the rest of us. Now, what was you, you, you mentioned that you didn't have a sense of that, though, growing up, of no. what that felt like. I did not. Yes. I right. did not. It's a, it's a precinct meeting. And I want to make clear, my father, who I admire tremendously, my mm -hmm. late father, but he was not a civil rights activist. Sure, sure, sure. But... Uh, he really believed in the American ideal of fairness. Mm -hmm. We went to the precinct meeting. At this time, a nomination for the Democratic Party was tantamount to election. Mm -hmm. uh, there were no Republicans in Texas at that time. <laughs> uh, my father used to joke that he, they had one stuffed in the Herman Park Zoo, mm -hmm. uh, and that he would take the children there and say, you know, there, there are rumors that great herds of them run up north, but there hasn't been, been that for you. But no, we went to the precinct meeting. Right. And uh, which previously had been all white, uh, no one of color allowed. And there were, uh, my recollection is, four gentlemen who had been in the service, African Americans. Right, and so they, so they up, were veterans, yeah. They were veterans, yeah. and mm -hmm. they showed up at the precinct meeting. It was a very tense from the moment they came. And they were, in my recollection, asked rather forcefully to leave, and they just said, no, we're not going to at any rate. Uh, the votes were taken on a stand-up basis. All the papers stand up, all the posts stand up. Mm -hmm. And my father whispered to me, when they stand, we stand. Uh, because they were outvoted, of course, 
at every turn. Right. And it was, it was a tense meeting. I thought it might break into fistfight. It didn't. But it made a deep impression on me mm -hmm. about when we stand, when they stand, we stand. Because he was explaining to me going home how things were changing. Wow. And why they should change. Mm -hmm. And again, it wasn't, he, he grew up in a segregated society. And he, he, like I, grew up in an atmosphere of, quote, that's just the way it is. Sure. But uh, he felt very strongly. They had fought on the war. They had earned the right mm -hmm. to come to the precinct meetings as her. And the ultimate expression of patriotism, as you mentioned before, willing to lay down their life for their country. Right. And then to come back and be treated like they're un-American right? or non-American, which is even worse. Well, and unfortunately, right. that continued uh, pretty much unabated until Dr. Martin Luther King and the early stages of what's become known as the Civil Rights Movement in 62. Mm -hmm. Because I also, in what you and I just detail, uh, meeting Medgar Evers. Medgar Evers in Mississippi. Yes, and Merle Evers, yeah. And, and you met Merle Evers as well, right? Yeah. I, I did. Yeah. Uh, that Medgar Evers, this was 1962 in Mississippi. Sure. We were talking at the precinct meeting about 1945, 46. Well, you were just a young, you were yeah. a kid then. Right? Now, in 1962, in Mississippi, Medgar Evers went with some African-American people who were qualified to vote, showed up at the voting booth, and was just told, you're not voting today, you're not voting any day. Mm -hmm. That coverage of Dr. King and being with Medgar Evers, we became friends of sorts before he was assassinated. Really changed me as a person, yeah. and as a professional. It was very striking how you mentioned the death of Medgar Evers isn't talked about as much in the, in the civil rights arena, but it was, uh, it was definitely a seminal moment. It's, I get chills thinking about it right now because even the way you talk about it where it didn't seem even like that big of a deal when it happened. Right. It almost seemed like a fate to complete, you know, like, and even the way his wife talked about it, she was almost resigned to the fact that it seemed like that was going to happen. Well, it was a big effort to convince people it was, quote, no big deal. Mm -hmm. That uh, the, the racial demagogues of, of the time, Ross Barnett, the governor of Mississippi, uh, George Wallace, Leander Perez, they wanted to make it seem like it was no big deal. But believe you me, in the African-American of African-American communities throughout the South, the assassination of Medgar Evers reverberated. Absolutely. And reverberated very, very strongly. It was one of the seminal events of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. But, you know, here we are in 2017, and we've made progress. There have been some advancements in civil rights. Yes, we elected an African-American president of the United States. African-American, let's be honest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let's be yeah. honest, let's be honest. <laughs> but elected not once but twice. But yes, that's true. So that makes it full African American. You're right. You're right. <laughs> My bad, Dan. You're right. All right. He's right. <laughs> okay, we'll mark it up. <laughs> but here we are, and, and it's we like we got one black person for for four years out of all that. Right. Yeah. Well, it's a reminder. Even now, one of the most difficult things to have a a real conversation about mm -hmm. in this country. Is race. It really is. Yeah. It's 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 a one it's a subject that most people just want to avoid. Mm -hmm. Where we need to be talking, we need to listen to one another and talk to one another. And my concern about the country, I'm optimistic about our future. Really, I'm mm -hmm. optimist. I'm an optimist by nature mm -hmm. and by experience. 
And I do think we'll get through this. Yeah. But it won't just happen magically. I'm not optimistic unrealistically. Yeah. I, I, I consider myself a realistic optimist that we have to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And one way we can start is having real conversations right. about a racial problems. It's one of those things people like to dance around. Another, frankly, it's very hard to have a conversation about guns in this country. Absolutely. But, but race is the most difficult conversation to have, and in my opinion, the most important conversation. Yeah, and you, you quoted uh, Dr. King when he was uh, referencing Vietnam. Um, before uh, King was assassinated, you know, he didn't have quite the um, ear that he had maybe a few years earlier. Right. He started talking about Vietnam. He started talking about economic injustice. Some of these things, they had a, a poor people's march or a poor people's march, <laughs> they <laughs> called it back then. And uh, you quoted him, and he talked about moving beyond the prophesying of a smooth patriotism to a firm descent based upon the mandates of conscience and the reading of history. What do you think he meant by smooth patriotism? I think he meant by smooth patriotism, and far be it for me to go very sure. far in the direction of trying to interpret right, right, right. Dr. King. But I think what he meant by that, smooth patriotism is, uh, let's not make anybody uncomfortable. Uh-huh. Uh, let's be patriotic, but let's just smooth over, if you will, the rough spots, the very difficult spots. I've mentioned two here tonight. Yeah. I think that's what he meant. It meant that what we need is a more protean um, patriotism, in which we talk about our vulnerabilities, talk about our mistakes, talk about where we need to improve. Mm-hmm. And that's where you talked about if you, if you move to a patriotism of real conscience, that's what I talked about before, conscience and humility, in which you say, I'm very proud of the country. It's a great country and we are great people, but we have these problems. And for my children and their children, I want to make it a better country. I think that right. he was trying to put the difference between just saying, saluting the flag, saying the Pledge of Allegiance, singing the anthem is enough. That's smooth patriotism. Right. But what he was calling for was something willing to take risk. Mm-hmm. Dr. King took risk. And when he came out against the Vietnam War, it gave a lot of his, his deep hating opposition a, an opening to say, you see, he really is not a patriot. Yeah. And it, it gave them an opening. He took that risk, and in many ways he lost the risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I write in What Unites Us, I think I always knew, and he always knew, Dr. King uh, was not a perfect person. No, of course but, not. But he was as brave as any person I've ever seen. Yeah. And keep in mind, I've seen people on battlefields, because he, worked, he walked moment to moment on the razor's edge of death, and he knew it. Mm. But after he spoke out against the Vietnam War, the target on his back got bigger. I think so, yeah. And from that moment on, I found myself saying, it's only a question of not much time, and indeed it wasn't much. You were also, you know, finding your oats as a reporter, let's say, during the 60s. In, in fact, I, I'm, I'm a student of some of that history 
JFK assassination, I, I've seen clips of CBS News covering him. There's a young Dan Rather reporter from Texas, <laughs> reporting from uh, Dallas. Right. And you were right there on the scene. You were in Dallas when that happened. Well, know. I was in charge of our CBS News coverage of the president's yeah. trip to Texas, which was supposed to be a routine trip. Otherwise, yeah. I would not have been in charge of our coverage. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, no one thought anything of it. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> That's amazing. And uh, you, you kind of went through a period where the press was, it really seemed to be under attack a lot during the 60s because of the coverage of the Vietnam War. It was like the first war that was on television, let's sure. say, you know, even, did you have a sense during that time that uh, there was a target maybe on the backs, not a literal target, yeah. but on the backs of U.S. Well, press during that time? And were you, do you think you were seen as non-patriotic during that period? Or? Well, first of all, uh, it started with coverage of the Civil Rights Movement. Yeah. Uh, when I first started covering for CBS News, the Civil Rights Movement, we were regularly called and threatened the, quote, colored broadcasting system. Mm -hmm. In some cases, the communist broadcasting system. Uh, and it was, I don't want to be overly dramatic about it, but it was dangerous to be a reporter in many of the datelines mm -hmm. of the South of the early 60s. So there, there was that uh, criticism and threats of the press. Different from today in that, at that stage, in none of the criticism came from the President of the United States. Mm -hmm. Now, with the Vietnam, <laughs> <laughs> a big difference. Yes. Uh, but when, with the Vietnam War, yes, as the war went on and it became increasingly apparent that what the journalists were reporting as the realities on the ground were at such variance with what the leadership was saying the situation right. was, that there was, there were efforts to intimidate the press by saying, you know, these young reporters are unpatriotic. They really are anti-military. Yeah, because it almost seemed like the press's job before that was to be almost a propaganda arm of the government yeah. rather than, you know, well, exactly keeping it behind it. I think it's worth reminding ourselves, and it's one of the points I'm making. What unites us that this is a bad time, but we've been through bad times before. When mm -hmm. people say, "Have we ever been this divided before?" Well, we were a very divided country during the 1960s mm -hmm. over civil rights, over the war. Remember, there were race rights, really large race rights in, in many cities during the 60s, particularly 68 the convention 60. was a big deal. convention. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, if you go back to the 1860s, we had a catastrophic civil war. Even I was not alive during that time. <laughs> but, but <laughs> What is it about the 60s, Dan? What's going on? <laughs> well, the 1760s, yeah. don't even get me started. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, you know, I think it's important we remind ourselves of these times when we've had very difficult times before and yes. got through them uh, as a way of keeping hope alive during this period when it's very easy to get discouraged. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, would you, uh, it's funny, uh, you also quoted Eisenhower as saying, uh, may we never confuse honest dissent from disloyal subversion. Um, would, would you say that the way Trump is treating the president is, is an example of disloyal subversion? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, that's what I to know. Uh, and I'm very, I'm very glad you picked out that Eisenhower quote, because keep in mind, yes. uh, Dwight Eisenhower was a two-term Republican. Very yes, underrated yeah. for quotes, that Eisenhower, too. Yes. yes. But uh, that it, it, it's at, it applies to today mm -hmm. to keep that in mind, to not confuse a dissent, conscionable dissent, yes. uh, 
with uh, subversion. And there's, there's always somebody in political power who wants to do that. Mm -hmm. And we used the NFL example before. I think it's a classic example of an effort to exploit honest dissent, honest intending dissent, and which we need to listen to it. Doesn't mean everybody has to agree with it, but it's to listen to what Chuck sure. said. At, 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 contrasted with the president trying to make it subversion of our military fighting forces overseas, which I'll come back to it, not only was that disgusting, but it's outrageous. Yeah. Um, I find, uh, do you find his treatment of the press like the most dangerous thing this president is doing? Or, you know, outside of a nuclear, <laughs> a nuclear incident. Arguably, that would be the most dangerous. But, well, well, to me, it seems very dangerous because by taking the legs out of the press as an institution to trust, you know, that fourth estate, yeah. you know, I mean, it's very Orwellian. I, I think you bring up Orwell in your yeah. book, too. Um, you know, and this whole notion of fake news, how, how, does, the, how does the press today present, you know, fight against fake truth, let's say, because that's what's being yeah. put out there to me is fake truth. Yeah. I mean, well, which is an odd thing to say, yeah. fake truth. I know. Well, a yeah. big subject, and of course one dear to my own heart, and we could talk the rest of the night about it. I yes. assure you we're not going to, but, yeah. uh, but we need to address it. You know, first of all, we make mistakes in the press. I've certainly made mine. Sure. Uh, nobody can do it perfectly. Mm -hmm. And when we make mistakes, we do need to own up to those mistakes. So. I'm not saying that the press is not somewhat to blame themselves for the situation, but we have to understand that the time we're going through now with the Trump administration in terms of what's going on with the effort to discredit the press is unprecedented in American history. Mm -hmm. Never in our history have we had any president, never mind a first-term president from the very first day, personally attack the press so relentlessly and using the full force and power of the presidency to do so. Mm -hmm. Now, certainly President Nixon did not like the press, for example. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and he worked mm -hmm. to try to intimidate the press, particularly the owners of press platforms, big corporate uh, leadership. But he did it mostly through surrogates. For example, he had his vice president, Spiro Agnew, say it. Yeah. But even President Nixon, who really had a deep hatred for the press, never went to the extremes that Donald Trump has gone. President Trump has attacked, out of his mouth, individual reporters. You remember during the campaign, he ridiculed, he mocked the reporter who had physically, which was really uh, uncivil to say the least. But he's attacked press institutions, Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, mm -hmm. regularly. We've never, this is something new. There's an effort to convince people that this is normal. A lot of things that President Trump is doing that are unprecedented in mm -hmm. the history of the country. The effort is to convince the public at large, well, you know what, yeah, Trump's a little bit different, but this is kind of normal. This, folks, is not normal, and we know it. And, 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 And I, you know, I, I do think that a consensus is forming in the country, even among some, maybe many of the people who supported President Trump, not that they're turning against him, but a sense that we're better than this. Mm -hmm. 
We Americans are better than this in what we're doing. Yeah. I mean, you would hope someone would say, at long last, sir, have you no decency <laughs> at some point. Well, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that's not what a lot of people are thinking. But I, I do want to emphasize with what unites us. The book. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I tried hard in the book to make it not a screed against President Trump. Sure. His name is not even mentioned in the book. He referred to uh, some <laughs> Yes. Well, but uh, someone asked me the other day, had I sent a book to President Trump for him to read? Yeah. Uh, it, I, 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 well, to read? I, 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 I do. You know, <laughs> can put his KFC well, on it, maybe, well, on Air Force One. Well, <laughs> I appreciate you raising that, Larry, because while I do think that the president and Steve Bannon and some of those around him and any supporter of Trump could read the book, not that they're going to like everything sure. and it would get something out of it. But we're told that President Trump, is, how should we say that, is not a big reader of books. Mm -hmm. So I, I was going to ask your advice. Yes. Uh, uh, there Give is, him a small book. There is an yeah. audio version of this book. Yeah. Perhaps I should send him the audio version of the book, which I read. I don't know. The attention span is really, really short. <laughs> really short. Uh, there better be music. Let me, let me ask you this, then. Okay, and I'm trying to be as fair as possible with this question, okay? Do you think Donald Trump is a narcissistic sociopath who yes. is a threat to the safety and security of the free world, or... I'm being fair, or is he just stupid? Which one do you think? Okay. Seriously. It's one or the other. No. Okay, let me be fair. But <laughs> is he just harmless? Am I reading too much in it? Because he does have a lot of support. He has a lot of people. He has a lot of people that think what he's doing with the press and the way he's answering the press, especially through Sarah Huckabee Sanders, is a patriotic act that he's, he's speaking for the people that don't have a voice. This is what a lot of people think, right? Well, I am going to come back to your question, but on this latter part... Yes. Uh, Answer the first question. He, first. he, he represents... Well, <laughs> as to the first question, obviously, you know, I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist, and you use those, what we call in Texas, 12-cylinder <laughs> words. I'm, those big pollutant words like stupid. Don't use sure. But I will say this. Yes. No, Donald Trump is not stupid. He benefits mm -hmm. by people underestimating him. Uh, I've known him. I'm not a close friend of him, never been, but, mm -hmm. you know, lived in New York, uh, knew him through the 80s and 90s. And Donald Trump has always had, Ryan, uh, he has a certain cunning shrewdness about him. Mm. Uh, and he has, uh, for someone who's wealthy and born to privilege, he has, he has a version of street smarts, and it would be a mistake to say, well, listen, he's just stupid. So, one, no, he is not stupid. Uh, he is Machiavellian, if you like to use a phrase. He is shrewd, cunning. Uh, he is self-centered. Uh, and that's something for a present or a former anchorman to talk about somebody else being <laughs> egocentric. Yeah. Uh, I have to be careful. So, no, he's not stupid. Mm -hmm. As to the first, uh, those uh, medical terms, I, I don't feel qualified to say it, but I will say this. His, his words and his action, and particularly the tone and temper of the presidency, as mm -hmm. he's right, is dangerous. 
It's dangerous to survive the country. Yeah. About that, I don't think. But, you know, here is where my optimism shows through. And again, it's yeah. not an unrealistic yes. optimism, Larry. That Americans, we have our faults, and we're not good at everything. Mm. But by and large, as a people, as a society, we're pretty good at separating bullshine from brass tacks. <laughs> and I, th I think people are beginning to do that increasingly with President Trump. Sure. Now, you mentioned nuclear. Uh, you know, is, is it attacking against the press the most dangerous thing he does? No. I think the two most dangerous things that he does is one, uh, try to exploit the divisions in the country mm -hmm. by such things as trying to give false equivalency to neo-Nazis. Neo-Nazis. Right. And citizens who are dissenting, protesting peacefully to give his wink and a nod to the Ku Klux Klan, the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, this is real and present danger, and we shouldn't underestimate it. Now, there's the, the larger, uh, very complicated dangers of he and he, uh, and he alone uh, can fire nuclear weapons. Mm. And uh, I don't want to cast a pall over this session, but I'm a little concerned that Many people in the country don't realize how close to a war we are with North Korea. Right. I'm not predicting it will happen. I will say that it's the closest we've been to a war on the Asian mainland uh, since the Vietnam War. Yeah. And uh, keep in mind that Afghanistan is subcontinent. But nonetheless, we, you know, I have two grandsons now, one 20, one is 16. Uh -huh. And if indeed we were to go to war with Korea, they would both have to serve. And I, I, I think about it a lot. The Korean situation, Donald Trump did not create the Korean situation. He inherited this situation. But I do think he has exacerbated it by some of the things he said. Now, I, I know well the argument that says, well, he's just a good poker player. He's just a good negotiator. He's, he, he wants the North Koreans to think he's unpredictable. I don't, I don't buy that. But he's the guy who bluffs when he's playing crazy eights. I don't think he understands how poker is played. Like, he, I don't even think he understands the role of the United States in South Korea, because he undermines that all the time while he's blowing up North Korea. I mean, it's well, insane to me. Well, uh, again, insane might be a little strong for me, but it's dangerous. Yes. Um, let me get your take on also what's going on in the country now uh, is the wave of sexual harassment and assault allegations. Um, that are, do you feel that part of that, um, some people have said that it's kind of a reaction to who's in the White House right now. Who knows? Right. Um, but it definitely is, I think, as Nero O'Donnell, um, coined as a reckoning right now. What is your take on this situation? I think it's a reckoning. I was mm -hmm. a little slow to come to that conclusion mm -hmm. when these, this present spate of stories begin breaking. Yeah, I think it would have happened anyway, personally. Yeah. But I'm not sure, but I, 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 I've concluded now, it is the day of reckoning, you already mm -hmm. used a metaphor. I think there's definitely a, a change of tide, that things are going to be different going forward mm -hmm. on this, in, this whole area of sexual harassment. This much we know. It's gone on far too long, mm -hmm. and it took a number of brave women to come forward Absolutely. And, and make the case. Uh, yeah. and what, I, what I'm a little concerned about is there'll be a tendency, as the tide turns, mm 
we've already seen there's a concentration on name people, celebrities, well-known people. Sure. This problem is deep and abiding in the society. Correct. And it may take a while for the tide to turn, for people at the, at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. I think about you know, the women who make uh, the maids in hotels, yeah. the waitresses at the local diner, mm -hmm. uh, the woman who works at the uh, sort of low-cost department store, that it's, it, it's rampant in those areas, perhaps even more so than it is in corporate America or networks. Yeah. And the women who are victimized by it have far less opportunity to speak up and speak out are much more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So as we go forward with this tide change, and I hope I'm right about that, and I think I am, that any man, including myself, who is thinking, well, this is just, this happens from time to time, mm -hmm. is getting himself. There's a new day, and it's long overdue. Yeah. I agree. It's funny because, um, What's, what's interesting is that for such a charged issue is that that, ironically, I think can be an issue that should unite us. It really is a nonpartisan issue. Exactly. It's completely a human issue. Um, I've said you don't have to have a sister or a daughter, you know, or a wife. You just need to be a feeling human being to understand why this why this issue is important and why it's wrong. I, I also agree, Larry, that it could be one of those things that unites us. Yeah. I frankly had not thought of it that way before you just mentioned but That's the irony a, of it all. Yeah. This, is, this is not a partisan political issue. Mm -hmm. There'll be those who try to make it into that. Of course. It, it is not that. Uh, it's not an ideological issue. It's, just, it's an issue of human decency and fairness. Mm -hmm. And fairness is one of the things we Americans have always seen ourselves and I believe we have been and are, for the most part, uh, an empathetic people and a fair people. Mm. That doesn't mean that we've always been fair. Uh, race, we come back to race, race, but we, we think that is one of our goals, and it's a worthy goal of us. And uh, it is this whole business of let's change the whole moray of the society about what happens with women in the workplace and other places. This is a great opportunity to unite around that theme. Now, a president could seize on that mm. to say, listen, we have our arguments and you may dislike me, but can we pull together as a country? You could write a pretty good presidential speech around that. I don't you, expect to hear it any Yeah, if you soon. weren't the fox in the hen house, you could. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <all right. laughs> uh, uh, it's, it's interesting that... Um, in America, most of the time, it feels that tragedies have brought Americans together more than, than nice events, I guess you could say. Yeah. I mean, you've been around long enough, Dan, um, not to say how old you are, of course, <laughs> but I mean, just in your lifetime alone, the death of FDR, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, arguably the moon landing may have been the one positive thing that brought people together in 9-11. Right. Like, those are the big things, maybe Pearl Harbor yeah. first, where... Does Wait. it seem like those were kind of the seminal patriotic, outpouring of patriotic moments for you? Well, in this that's country? true, and you make a good point, that frequently tragedy and threats mm -hmm. uh, tend to unite us, yeah. human nature. But I was going to mention the moon landing or something, you know, that rarely in my lifetime has there been a sense of not just pride, mm -hmm. but 
unity in the country yeah. as when we landed on the moon. And globally, too, ironically. It felt like the world came together yes. during that moment. Yeah. Yes. But it is true that mostly, most of the time it's, it's a tragedy of threat. Yeah. But, again, we don't have to confine it to that. Mm -hmm. I, I, think, I see this moment with President Trump now, and having said this is a perilous time, this is a dangerous time, and we have to be very careful, because sooner or later the Trump presidency ends. And when it ends, <laughs> how, no, when it ends, how much damage will have been, been done? And how do we heal ourselves from that moment on? But you're right, you know, uh, that it, it, so it's a time of opportunity for us if we think of it that way. Mm -hmm. But I recognize that for many, many people who are saying, what the hell is Dan Rather talking about? Optimism and hope. Yeah. Uh, that I'm really fearful. And, and again, let's talk straight about it, particularly for people of color. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a, some justifiable fear, even terror, of what, what's been going on. And the kind of conversations that particularly African-American families or Latino families have to have with their children during the Trump administration uh, is something that people, uh, Caucasians, should think very carefully about. Mm. Uh, because if we're, going to, if we're going to stand united going forward, we have to find a way to ease these fears. And it's very difficult to do so in the atmosphere that the president has, uh, has yeah. constituted. Dan, you ended all your telecasts with the word courage, and you end your book with a chapter called Courage. What is the thing that you feel is we need to be most courageous about that can be something that could unite us? Well, first of all, is to understand, again, a rough definition of courage is being afraid and going ahead anyway. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, and I think what could unite us is keeping in mind that we're going to need some courage to get through this period. Mm. We're going to need uh, individual courage, the kind of courage that says, you say to yourself, I'm going to get up this morning and I'm going to help one other person this day. I want to have the courage to get up and dedicate myself to helping one other person. And when I do, after I do that, I want to do one thing to help my community. This is, this is small courage. It's, it's the, it's the tiny acts of courage, the cumulative effect that often makes difference. Sure. You know, I have seen courage in any number of forms, having mentioned Dr. Martin Luther King and Medgar Evers. Mm -hmm. uh, without being over dramatic about it, I've seen people on the battlefield mm -hmm. who charge a machine gun nest, uh, do all kinds of heroic things. But there is a quieter kind of courage, which I've just described, which there's a great need of today. There's also the courage to get active. I've heard people say all the time, what can we do? And they're speaking of, they want a political change. Uh -huh. Well, let's see clearly, let's remind ourselves. If you want political change, if you don't like the mayor, you don't like the governor, you don't like your senator, you don't like the president, there's a solution for that. Get active, stay active, organize, help organize, get yourself and get people to the ballot box. Because that's the ultimate decider here. As the Washington Post commented a few weeks ago, the best revenge, revenge is best served at the ballot box. Ooh. That's the way to do it. Yes. Very nice. Um, 
As I mentioned before, uh, the chapters in your book are separated into different topics. One of them is on the arts, which I found uh, interesting, my field, of course. And, <laughs> and I know sometimes you have a passage that you like to read. Would you do us a favor and read a I will. passage? Thank you, Larry. From, would you yeah, like to hear you. Dan Rather read a short excerpt? Thank you, Larry. Sure, that would be good. Uh, this will be mercifully brief. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to read this because we're... Uh, we're in a performing arts center, yes, for one thing. There and, you go. And, uh, so you I have can, to do it very Shakespearean then. You have to uh, <laughs> if I can find my place here, for <laughs> if I can't find my place, we'll be in real trouble. While I'm looking for it, by the way, Larry, if we will uh, do me a, an indulgence, please. Sure, absolutely. And I should have done this at the beginning. Uh, the co author of this book is Elliot Kirshner, whom yes. I, I worked with at CBS and worked for many years. And he is in the audience tonight. He came to see you. Elliot you Kirshner. Can give out Elliot Kirshner. Where is Thank he? You, yes. Very, uh, you, you've worked with Elliot for quite a while. Though. I have. I worked yes. with him at, at CBS for uh, many years. And yes. he, he joined me. I, I have a, a, a news operation now called News and Guts, mm-hmm. newsandguts.com. And he's been uh, very key in that. Well, oh. thank you. And thank you, Elliot. Well, we, since we're in a performing arts center, this is in the chapter entitled The Arts. And for those of you who may be following along in your hymnals, uh, it, <laughs> it's on, speaking's on page 159. <laughs> Quote, art should not be about impressing others, whether you're an individual or a nation. Art is about engaging in a candid dialogue with yourself. We now understand that the great American story is not confined to history books or political speeches. It is sung and danced and dramatized and turned into verse. It is painted and sculpted, written and filmed. Artists may not swear an oath to serve in government or the military, but they swear an oath to freedom of expression that is no less worthy. Our art has been, like our country, boisterous and contagious and gloriously distinct. It has expressed euphoria, shame, and outrage. It has been exalted, and it has felt the sting of suppression and marginalization. It has been misunderstood. Perhaps most important, our art has been wonderfully diverse. Our corporate boardrooms do not fully represent America, neither does our Congress, Supreme Court, nor certainly those we have elected to the presidency, but our artistic community represents the United States in all its multiple wonders. And speaking of art, you're all looking at an American Rembrandt, Mr. Dan Rather. Thank you. Dan, would you like to to take some questions? Sure. Why don't we open it up for some questions that you may have for Dan or for his book or for about art? Thank you, uh, Larry. And uh, we received well over 100 questions. What? One way to make sure your question gets asked is to reference your 10-year-old and then say you're bringing your 10-year-old tonight. So here's the question. Our 10-year-old understands the polarizing political climate. What advice would you give him as he navigates his way through adolescence in today's America? 
What advice would you give your 10-year-old to navigate his way through today's America? Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, first of all, uh, um, my grandsons, I mentioned one is 20, one is 16, but for a 10-year-old, it would be the same. Well, first of all, um, I would say to him, never, never lose your idealism. With a 10-year-old, you might have to talk about what idealism is. Mm -hmm. But there's so much in the world, such a heavy undertow towards cynicism. And cynicism, I tell the 10-year-old, cynicism is to be avoided. Never lose your idealism. Uh, that's one thing I would say to him. And the other thing I would say is believe in yourself, believe in your country and find your passion in life. Yeah. That's about the sum of a short version of what advice I'd give, but I'd be a poor person to give advice to anybody, as many mistakes as I've made in life. <laughs> I always tell people, or young people, I say, don't look at life as what you can get out of it. Look at life as what you can put into it. Oh. Make a contribution in your life. Try to Wonderful. leave the world better than how you found it. Yeah. Can't go wrong. All right, what's our next one? Yay, Larry. What actions can be taken to strengthen the fourth estate? Uh, what actions should we as a society take? Correct. What actions should we take to help strengthen the fourth estate? Are there any actions that we can take? Yes. Uh, there are all kinds of actions. Mm -hmm. Beginning with just, uh, I ask as a journalist to remind yourself what you learned in no later than seventh grade civics. Mm -hmm. And that is a free and independent, fiercely independent when necessary press is the red beating heart of freedom and democracy. Uh, that, the press's role of being part of the system of checks and balances on power is absolutely essential. And almost every president has acknowledged this, President, President accepted. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, all, while they had their moments of disliking the press, mm -hmm. uh, understood that how vital it is to have the press as a, as a check on power. And I wish it were my definition, but the other thing I would have, you said, how can people help, is to keep in mind that one important definition of, of the press's role is that news is what people need to know that someone somewhere, usually some powerful person, doesn't want them to know. <laughs> right. That That's is true. news. Most of the rest is just propaganda and commercials. <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. I also wanted to ask you, um, there's also kind of a crumbling of the news um, machinery itself. You know, many newsrooms are closing down, newspapers are right. folding. How much of a danger is that to our, to our free press? Well, quite a bit. What's happened with uh, the press in the country, and there's some reverberation of this worldwide, particularly in this country, mm -hmm. is the old business model for newspapers, magazines, and for that matter, for television and radio to a degree. The old business model is pretty much gone. Nobody has come up with a new business model, with very few exceptions. No business model. 
that can sustain over a long period of time such things as first-rate international news reporting, right. foreign bureaus, people posted overseas to uh, deep-digging investigative reports. Mm -hmm. uh, these are two of the most expensive forms of journalism, two of the most vital forms of journalism, but they're expensive. So with the old business model that and gone, nobody coming up yet with a new business model that will sustain the best forms of quality journalism with integrity, the journalism is, is struggling. But obviously, uh, a great deal of the future belongs on the Internet. Mm -hmm. And increasingly, uh, news organizations, including online news organizations, are moving to the Internet and finding new ways to have it produce revenue. That's going to be a big part of the future. But your question of, well, should we be worried about that? Yes, you'd be worried about it. Mm -hmm. And I will say that one way you could help is if you're not subscribing to your local newspaper or a newspaper, subscribe. Yes, <laughs> especially on the local level, definitely. Uh, so, next question. It's like the voice of God. I don't even know where the people are. Mr. Rather, would you please comment on Citizens United and the influence of money on our elected officials? This may be among the most important things said tonight, not assuming that anything important has been said. In stage, but, well, no. I'm not claiming but, I said but, anything. Look, it's very hard for us to accept, but you have to accept that on many issues, many issues, guns being one of them, pharmaceuticals being another, big insurance, including hospitals, only big insurance being others. On many of the most important uh, issues of the government, your Congress is bought and paid for mm -hmm. by special interest money. That's a fact. This, this is not, yeah, yeah, right. And you have to understand that. Uh, and Citizens United, uh, first of all, the political forces that brought the case that resulted in Citizens United, the Supreme Court appointments that resulted in it being, they're winning the case. Uh, Citizens United is, is a classic case of special interest money. There is special interest money on the other side of the political spectrum. Uh, but Citizen United stands, this is designed to buy a congressman. Mm -hmm. And it has not, not just Congress, but other officers as well. And I emphasize again, there are other forces on the side, but not equivalency. But nonetheless, in answer to the question, you have to be worried about it. But it is the law of the land. There's no present prospect of, of reversing it 10, 15 years from now, who knows? There's no present prospect. So, for Mr. and Mrs. regular citizen, you have to understand how this special interest money affects you directly. That brings us this tax bill that just passed the Senate and is, a, is going to be passed at the House. Ream after ream, page after page of this was actually written by lobbyists. Yes. Uh, Even in the margins. <laughs> in the margins. You know. uh, and, you know, President Trump talked about draining the swamp. Well, this tax bill, is a, as it stands, is, is a prime example of a swamp coming alive. It will have far-reaching consequences. It will have far-reaching consequences because much of this tax bill, if you, if, if you, if, even the little bit I've read, down the line, this is to be the uh, yet another opening 
to attacking Medicare as we know it yes. and Social Security as we know it. Mm -hmm. And if, not to read the tax bill in that way. And, and it's very likely to become law, uh, and we'll see how it works out. Yes, and on our fast-track way to being an oligarchy, for sure, for now one already, with Citizens United as well. Uh, next question. Um, Mr. Rather, what are your thoughts on the uh, Electoral College, the way it currently works? Is there any chance it could be changed? What are your thoughts on the elect on the Electoral College? I'm laughing because I find it so funny. Uh, do you think it should be changed, or is it a fine system? I, I feel that people, the loser always hates the Electoral College. That's the way it seems to me. Well, uh, I'm, I'm changing. I haven't changed. I, I want to answer the question. Uh, as frustrating as it is, I favor the Electoral College with some, with some adjustments, mm -hmm. which would require a constitutional amendment, I think, to do. Uh, but it, you're quite right. The, the loser usually complains about the Electoral College. Yes. But I understand uh, the frustration of people who say, look, in too many presidential elections, more people vote for the person who, who winds up losing than for the person who winds up winning. Yeah. And, and I understand the frustration of that. But again, in a, in a country, a, a big continental country such as ours, with in, incre an increasing population shift to the larger cities and the larger population states, mm -hmm. uh, it, the Electoral College came into being in order to give those states uh, with a sparse population as compared to others some measure in the election. So I don't want to dance around it. I still favor the Electoral College, but I'm open to let's, let's make some at least some adjustments. Yeah. And perhaps rather than changing the Electoral College, we could start with changing the primary system, which is easier to change, if you will. Mm -hmm. And the idea, and uh, I want to be careful here because I have many friends in Iowa, but the idea that Iowa and New Hampshire have an outsized uh, decision-making power over who stays in the race and who doesn't. So perhaps going to a system of regional primaries instead of having just mm -hmm. state by state, but changing the primary system and anything that would shorten the election, the length of the election campaign, would also be a help before we get to a decision on whether to change the electoral college. Yeah. Next question. Today, President Trump told Arab and Israeli leaders that he intends to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. What do you think of the announcement in terms of policy, politics, and diplomacy? So Trump has threatened, I think earlier, well, threatened, I don't know if this is the right <laughs> word. I think he, he promised, one of his promises was to move the American Embassy to Jerusalem. Uh, what do you think of that? What, is, is he, why is he doing that? Why is he making that such a bold uh, move or statement. Well, well in a way, I've tried. Um, I, I try very hard, particularly as life goes along, not to try to judge people's motives. Mm -hmm. But you can make a judgment on what they say and what they do. Right. I have no idea. Uh, I, I do have an idea. I can't know what right. I can't know what President Trump's motives are. Mm -hmm. There will be those who make an argument, and there it is worth considering that he's he's done this in hoping to hold what base he has and perhaps to build on the base 
uh, among uh, uh, Americans of Jewish heritage mm-hmm. uh, that uh, they, they're, they're important in the political process. He can say to himself, I can solidify myself with many of them. As you know, uh, to think of Americans of Jewish uh, heritage as one monolithic group is a great mistake. Uh, that they have their own individual opinions and the groups are great. But back to the point. Uh, there'll be those who argue that he did it strictly for political purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, this is, it's a, uh, he's made this move in a rather, it's in a more symbolic way because what, keep in mind, he says, well, he's, he's prepared to u- move the, Accept uh, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, mm-hmm. but he's going to keep the U.S. embassy in Tel Aviv. So there's a bit of trying to have it both ways here. Yeah. But in answer to the gentleman's question, uh, this is probably it went it got buried a little bit in today's news developments. But depending on how adamant President uh, Trump is mm-hmm. about not only switching symbolically and accepting Jerusalem as the capital of the country and moving the embassy, this will reverberate throughout the Arab world with Sunnis and Shiites alike. Yeah. And could certainly has the potential of making any dream of, of peace with Israel and his neighbors a, a far, far-fetched dream. Well, the problem with Trump, too, if it was a thoughtful move or if I thought there was a real strategy behind it, it might be easier to dissect from a logical standpoint, but I think all of his motives are based on who likes him, you know? And he knows that Bibi Netanyahu likes him, so that's like as far as the thinking goes, I think, you know? As soon as he says something against him, he'll hate him, he'll be his mortal enemy, (laughs) and he'll change his mind. I I really believe that that's how he operates. He operates on that type of a level. Well, a case can be made that you're right, but I will say- He was friendly with uh, Kim Jong-un for a hot second there. When uh, where he said where he uh, mentioned that yeah I might I might meet with them and use some respectful words even and then as soon as Un says something horrible which of course he's gonna do yeah. now he's this mortal enemy he's like a three year old Dan <laughs> is what I'm saying well and I hear you brother yeah <laughs> <laughs> like why are we trying to figure this out it's so easy okay anyhow next question. <laughs> Mr. Rather, if you could ask one question of President Trump and get an honest answer for him, what would that be? Ah, the second part is tricky. If you could ask one question of President Trump and get an honest answer, <laughs> second part is tricky. What would that question be? You're Dan Rather, you're back at the White House well, asking President Trump. My guess is that you're more likely to see uh, Fidel Castro ride through here on a giraffe than you <laughs> Keep in mind, pass in front of me. No, uh, there's, there's no way of knowing the second, uh, the second part of that question. Yes. Exactly. But uh, I'm still working on the giraffe. You have to give me a second. <laughs> yeah. I think that the the question uh, I have a long list of questions I'd like to ask President Trump. But beginning yeah. with this, and whether he would answer it uh, truthfully, answer it at all, or answer it truthfully, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I would my ideal would be to continue to press him if he didn't. Yeah. And the question is this, Mr. President, of what are you so afraid? 
you are obviously terrorized. You're absolutely afraid uh -huh. that special counsel Mueller or somebody is going to find out something about you that's so terrible. What is it that you're so fearful of? Uh -huh. Keeping in mind, Mr. President, if you will, whatever it is, better to get out front of it now. But I would press him, and if he said, well, uh, you know, I don't have any fears, I'd press. Because what we're seeing with this president, they're all the marks there, that he is, he is really a man in, in, in great fear that he's going to be found out. Something's going to be found out. Tax returns, connection with the Russians, I honestly don't know what it is. But there is something or some, several somethings that he's actually terrified are going to be found out about him. And any line of question that would seek to smoke that out, to get that out of him, uh, that, that would be my opening question to him as to whether, you know, he, he probably would try to duck and dodge for the first several questions. Mm -hmm. But one technique of interviewing, not necessarily aggressively so, is just keep asking the question until the, uh, interview subject either answer the questions or make it clear he's not going to answer it. Yeah. But I think that's the key question with President Trump. What is it that he's so afraid of? Good luck. Do <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have another question? Two more questions. Two more questions, great. The State Department. What is the Trump administration's goal in decimating the State Department? Okay, the State Department. What do you think his goal is in decimating the State Department? Because they haven't done a lot of hires there, they've eliminated some positions. There seems uh, to be kind of a nastiness towards... Well, uh, there's, there's obviously a plan and it's continuing to hollow out the State Department. And he's undermining Tillerson at the same time. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, both of those things are true. Mm -hmm. As to why he's doing it, again, it's very difficult to ascertain what the motive is. I would say it's fairly apparent that what he wants is control. Mm -hmm. He wants control consolidated, centered in the White House. By the way, this is common among presidents, not every president, but it's fairly common among presidents who want to control. Mm -hmm. But again, this, folks, is not normal. This is unprecedented to have this much hollowing out of the State Department in the first nine or ten months of the presidency. Yeah. And, uh, it, feels, it feels authoritarian to me. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. And I, 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 I don't see that it's going to be uh, that the worst is over. Mm -hmm. I think the State Department can expect uh, additional hollowing out. Yeah. And if so I, I, I don't have any empirical evidence, but if Secretary Tillerson survives another year, I'd be oh. very, very surprised. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what Christmas brings, right? <laughs> uh, and yes, and we have uh, one last question. All right. Um, go ahead, Dan. Yeah, the last question comes from a gentleman who identifies himself as 93. He wants to applaud you for how hard you're working at 86. And he says, today on Twitter, I saw that life on the road, and you posted a picture of Fritos and Diet Dr. Pepper. I saw that. I really? Saw that picture, yeah. Mr. Rather, he says. <laughs> Is is the secret to your longevity Fritos and Dr. Pepper? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, 
I think, uh, I think we have finally landed on what unites us, Mr. Riley. <laughs> uh, I really want to thank you for spending this time with us. I know the people of Riverside are very uh, happy that you came by. Also, love to thank Live Talks Los Angeles and for appearing on Larry Wilmore Black on the Air. How about one more round of applause for Dan Rather? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.